So if you have a Bible or a phone, um, don't you want to open it up to Luke chapter 4? There are no slides this week. I'm sorry. I got distracted watching the Stormers uh, yesterday, <laughs> which is normally when I do the slides. And there's only one slide, so I didn't do it. Uh, so it's Luke chapter 4. It's like we're only really looking at one verse today. So I thought you guys can handle without a slide and actually look at a Bible. Everyone's got a Bible on their phone anyway um, these days. Uh, we're going to be looking at Luke 4. If you have not been here, uh, if you're visiting or you've been traveling or whatever else, like we are finishing, um, we're finishing a series this morning on emotionally healthy disciples. Um, we're going to have a few one-offs I'll mention in the next couple of weeks, the next series that we're going to be getting into back into a longer book. Um, but we're finishing up Emotionally Healthy Disciples. Let me give you a brief summary. I'm not going to summarize all of the weeks again. Uh, that's a lot every week as I do that. But just to give you the headlines, if you want to go back, if you've missed this, you want to go back and listen to um, what we've done and where we've gone as a church, if you've missed certain ones of them. Uh, we, we started off by saying that, look, we only... Um, we're only ever as spiritually mature as we are emotionally mature. Y you're a whole person. You can't grow in your relationship with God while you remain emotionally immature or stunted where there's difficulties there. So becoming emotionally mature people is vitally important for us to experience all of the life that God has for us in Jesus. And so we said that the importance of uh, beginning by looking beneath the surface, that most of the action in our lives happens beneath the surface, that our emotions are a gift from God because they let us know. They're, they're like signals to us of what's really going on in our inner world, which is where all the main action happens. And there's a lot of help for us in paying attention um, to uh, the different emotions that we experience throughout the day or the week, to be able to name them and to reflect on them and to bring them to God. We spoke in the second week about how it's important uh, to break free from our past, that all of us have a family of origin, we all have a past, and it shapes us in ways that are so fundamental to who we are, and unless we acknowledge those things, own them, recognize them, and the gospel of grace comes to bear on our lives, and it's not that we break free from our families, sometimes that's helpful, we're not saying you cut ties with your family, we're not that kind of a church, but you have to cut ties with some of the negative influences of your, of your past that sometimes have come from your family of origin. Week three, we spoke about the gift of embracing the limits that God has given you, that God hasn't called you to do everything. God hasn't enabled you to do everything, and so the pressure's off. But what has God enabled you to do? How do you receive your limited ability as a gift from God? Not as a curse, not as a burden, but as a, as a life-giving limitation. Hey, this is, this is how God's made you. This is what He's called you to do. Do that, and there's tons of life in that, embracing limits. Week four, we said if you want to measure progress... Uh, you measure progress by making love the measure of maturity. If you wonder, how am I growing? Am I growing as a Christian? Am I making any progress? The marker that you use is, am I becoming more loving as a person? Am I loving God? Am I loving others? Not, am I giving more bucks? Am I going to church more? Uh, whatever else. Am I reading my Bible? Those can be indicators of maturity, but they're not the ultimate biblical indicator. The biblical indicator of whether you're making progress is, am I becoming more loving towards God and more loving towards uh, my fellow human beings. And then last, last of last week before Easter, we looked at um, the value of embracing grief and loss. That grief and loss comes to all of us in different ways, at different times, and that 
uh, I, I'd mentioned in that sermon that we can't be like ostriches who stick their heads in the sand. Do you remember that? Some of you were here, and I said, you can't be like an ostrich. And I, and I asked somebody to research. I wonder if ostriches actually do stick their heads in the sand. And I'm glad to report to you that they don't stick their heads in the sand. That is nonsense. So I'm commissioning somebody else with research, like how we ever got that saying if it's a lie. What else have we been led to believe that's true that's not? Uh, anyway, all the conspiracy theorists are getting excited this morning. Calm down. Um, that if you, if you ignore grief and loss, um, it's emotionally and spiritually damaging to us. You can't just turn a blind eye to the difficulties that have come um, onto the shores of your life throughout your years, even now, and that will come. We have to embrace grief and loss and meet Jesus in the midst of that, that there's so much that God is trying to do in us, shape us with, and teach us that we can only learn through seasons of grief uh, and loss. And so it's not a punishment from God, it's a gift to receive as we get to know Him more. And this week is our last week, and we're going to be looking at the idea um, by the way, these all come from a, a book by Pete Scazzera, if you haven't already heard me mention this every week, The Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. If you haven't read the book, it's really well worth reading. Um, and the last one we're going to be looking at this morning is that your being with God uh, sustains your doing for God. Being with God sustains your doing for God. Um, and that's why I wanted you to open up Luke 4. Um, as you have a look at Luke 4, uh, let's just jump let me give you a summary, and then we'll read a little bit of Luke 4 at the end. Luke 4 is a very long chapter. Uh, there are, what, 44 verses of Luke 4. Luke 4 opens with Jesus being led into temptation in the wilderness. Jesus is baptized by John. The, the Father speaks over him. The Holy Spirit descends on him, and it says that he's led then by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness. And Jesus goes uh, without food and water, um, and he is tempted in the, in the wilderness. Satan comes and tempts him three times. Uh, this is sort of the start of his ministry. As a way, there's no ministry yet, but this is preparation for a time of ministry. Then he comes back out of the wilderness, and it says he goes and he starts teaching all over the place. This is all in Luke 4. When you get to the end of Luke 4, Jesus, it slows down. So it, it covers a lot in the beginning of Luke 4, and at the end, it covers one day, and it's a really, really long day Jesus has. He is like, He's teaching in the synagogues. He's driving out demon-possessed, uh, driving out demons from a guy. Um, then when he's finished doing, doing that, he goes to um, his friend's house. I'm giving you the summary here. And the, the mom is sick, uh, raises, raises her up so that she can help. And then word gets uh, around that Jesus, the healer, is there. So the whole town and the surrounding area bring all their sick people to Jesus. I mean, you know when you've had a, a long day and all you want to do is go home and have like a cup of tea or just whatever, imagine the whole neighborhood rock up at your house. Like some of you who are introverted, like you're just getting the shivers uh, just thinking about that. Like Jesus could have done with putting up his feet and just having some time, some, some me time. Uh, I don't think Jesus ever had me time, but anyway, we'll get to that. Um, some just downtime, the whole area come to Jesus not just a visit and to autograph kind of thing, bringing all the sick and the lame and the whatever is demon-possessed to him and say, hey, Jesus, will you sort out all these problems? He does that. He prays for everyone. He's driving out demons. He's healing, healing, healing. We don't know how long that goes on for. The next thing that you see is the next morning, they're looking for Jesus. 
They're like, it gets the longest day Jesus has had. They all wake up, the disciples are like, oh my gosh, that was the longest day ever. They can't find Jesus anywhere. And here you read, let me, let me actually read it for you. So you know, I'm not making this up. From verse 42 of Luke 4, this is where we'll just dive in here. When it was day, your different translations will say early in the morning, something else. The CSB says, when it was day, he went out and made his way to a deserted place. But the crowds were searching for him. They came to him and tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said to them, it's necessary for me to proclaim the good news about the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. What do you see Jesus doing after the longest, one of the longest days that he's had that we have recorded there? Doesn't, he's not lying in. He's not like, that was a long day. I need just to have a slow start, like a four-day week. Just need to catch up with myself. You see him up before everybody else is up, heading out to a deserted place to be alone, to pray, and to get clarity around the mission that God has, that the Father has for him again. The word that you see there, deserted place, if you have a Bible and you're looking in Luke 4, when you read in the beginning of Luke 4, it says that the Holy Spirit led Jesus out to a deserted place. It's the same word, Eremos. It means the wilderness. Nothing there. If you come on the trip to Israel, we'll take you to visit the Eremos, the deserted, the wilderness. Like the crew is lavish compared to the Judean wilderness. It's just rocks and sand. It's, I think it's ugly, but some people like that kind of vibe. Um, that's where Jesus was in his temptation. And this is where he goes to the wilderness again. He goes to a quiet place to be alone. We're going to look into some other stuff, but one thing I want you to notice um, briefly here in Luke 4, I don't want us to miss this, okay? because you see at the beginning of Luke 4 and at the end of Luke 4, Jesus on his own, on his own, with his Father in prayer, being strengthened for, for ministry. He's had a super long day, and what does he do to be refreshed? He doesn't sleep in. He's not looking for just some quiet time. He's going to be alone and with the Father and being quiet. You, in, in the beginning of Luke 4, when Jesus is tempted, this is really important to note. This is not deeply connected to this, but I didn't want you to miss this. Uh, when Jesus is led into the wilderness to face the greatest trial and temptation, Satan comes with a barrage of temptations. We don't have time to read through the whole thing here. If you're familiar with the accounts, you know that there's a threefold temptation that Satan throws at Jesus. And if Jesus gives in to any one of these, the whole mission falls apart before it gets going. The whole thing, there's no cross, there's no kingdom, there's nothing. If Jesus gives in here, because Satan promises in this, 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 if Jesus had gone with that, it, the whole plan would have fallen apart. This is massively taxing for Jesus. So what, what does he do? How does he, how does he endure the greatest test, trial, temptation? Just three very simple things that are worth banking Luke 4 reminds us that he goes in the power of the Spirit, in the power of the Spirit, to a solitary place. And what does Jesus use when Satan throws the kitchen sink at him? He uses the power and the authority of the Word. If you want to know how to thrive as a Christian, get alone in the power of the Spirit under the authority of the Word of God. That's what you see Jesus doing. It's, it's not rocket science. It's just simple. That's what he does. He's alone in the power of the Spirit, leaning on the authority of the Word. That's how he fights a battle that you and I have no idea 
the strength and the ferocity of it. Um, I wanted to point that out because I think it's really important. You don't see it repeated again. But I think that would have been Jesus' pattern as he spends time alone with the Father. This is the pattern of Jesus' life. I've only picked one scripture here from Luke 4. But you see it again and again. Jesus is up early. He's up early and he's off. He's up on the mountain. He's, he's off there. He's off there. He's spending the whole night praying the night before he picks the disciples to come to him. He chooses which of, the, which of all of his disciples are going to be the closest 12. He's up all night in prayer. You know, when, we, when we're having a big day the next day, we tend to go to bed early. Some people. I like to go to bed early. Uh, I, I used to be a night owl. Now I'm an, an early, well, I'm not much of an early bird. I'm an early bird by default. But now I like to go to bed early. Nothing better than going to bed early, especially if I, have, if I have a long day. Then I look at Jesus. He's got like a big, big day, big decision. He's up the whole night praying. I'm like, oh, gosh. Maybe I need to be a bit more like, I'm not saying that you should stay awake praying every night before you have a big presentation or a long day. But you see in Jesus a value of time with his father that outweighs the need for sleep. Our culture will tell you, you just need to rest, take it easy, whatever else. And we wonder why we have Christians and churches whose souls are weary and shriveled and are all hanging by a thread. It's because we haven't learned the secrets that Jesus knew and that Paul and the other disciples knew of, of the value of being with God. That's the, the subject that we're looking at today, that your being with God sustains your doing for God. It's massively important. Now, it's easy to dismiss this, to hear what and see what we see in Luke 4 and say, well, of course, of course Jesus needed to do that. Of course Jesus needed to spend the whole night praying before he picked the disciples. It's like next level, really important stuff. Of course Jesus always needed to get up early and go and pray. I mean, he's the son of God. He's on this mission. He's here to save the world. Understandable that Jesus needs to do that. We'll get a free pass because it's not really, we don't need, we're not doing the same thing. Um, he's next level, you know, the Messiah on the mission. We're going we're gonna to come back, we'll come back to this passage and, 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 and a bit later. But what I want to do is, I want to I wanna unpack two unhelpful divides that we believe. That I think contribute to a lot of our, our dysfunction as Christians and, and our soul weariness. Okay? I, I think I can say with a fair amount of authority that, in a room this size, there'll be a fair percentage of people who, if I asked you, how are you feeling this morning? And I said, if I gave you one of the options, I say my soul feels a bit weary. That there would be a good couple of people who would tick that box. There may be less people who would tick the box and say, 100%. Cooking, flying, I feel so alive in God, let me loose kind of thing. Uh, there's probably a fair percentage of people who say, I feel a bit wrung out and strung out. It's only, is it only, what are we in, April? March, April. I, I never know what month we're in. That's I have a wife. Um, and I think part of it is because we believe two unhelpful divides. The first one is this, that we, we believe and we've been taught that there's a sacred and secular divide. There's a sacred and secular um, divide. I, I I wish, maybe I'll do this in, the, in, the, in a couple of weeks' time, teach more deeply into this, show you more clearly from the Scriptures. Today, I just want to talk more into this like, and ask you a few questions to expose how deeply we believe these things. Um, wh what areas of your life don't need 
the grace of God to come to bear on you? Do you which areas are you okay in that you can manage and other areas where you need God's help? A helpful exercise for those, and, and I'm speaking particularly to Christians here. If you're not a Christian here this morning, you're very welcome, and I want you to listen in and I'll speak to you a little bit later. But this is particularly for those who consider themselves followers of Jesus. To think about the different roles that you play in life. What are your different roles that you play? Now, we're a slightly mixed age range, slightly. We're mostly a bit younger, but different life stages. What are the different roles? Because your roles change according to your life stage. I wrote some of mine down. I'm a husband, I'm a father, I'm a son, I'm a brother, I have siblings by the way in case you haven't met them, uh, I'm a pastor, I'm a friend, I'm a South African, etc. You know, I had a long list, I'll spare you the rest of it, but I have different roles that I play. When I put those all down on paper and I bring them to the Lord and say, I wonder which one of these areas I can manage on my own. I don't need the Lord's help. It's definitely not being the pastor. Um, <laughs> I definitely need the Lord's help pastoring you lot. Um, sorry, I didn't. <laughs> Did I say that out loud? Um, you know, you, you would understand like, okay, being a pastor, you definitely need the Lord's help to do pastoring kind of stuff. But you, do you need the Lord's help to be a brother? Do you need the Lord's help to be a husband, to be a son, um, to be a father, to, to be a South African? Do you need the Lord's help? <laughs> Rhetorical questions, 101. As I made that list, I realized there's not an area of my life, there's not a role that I play where I don't need the Lord's help and mercy and strength and wisdom and guidance. All of my life, every single role that I play equally needs the Lord's help. It's not that I need more grace to be a pastor and I've basically got husbanding down you know, it says in my notes here there would be a loud amen from Claire. Pause for everyone to, uh, you know, like uh, husbanding, I'm good, you know, but pastoring, you know, you need the Lord's help. It's like every area of your life needs the same grace and help from God over it. That's me. And, and do the same exercise and you'll realize that there isn't this weird sacred secular divide that we sometimes believe that now we're about the Lord's business. Today is church day. We need the Lord's help in the service. We're all here. But the rest of the week, you've got it. You've got it. You're an accountant. You're a lawyer. You're a teacher. You're a doctor. You're a mom. You're a financial analyst. You're a whatever else. You're an engineer. You're an architect. You're a, you, you can do that. You can do that. You've got it sorted. But you need the Lord's help for all the other spiritual stuff. It's like, where would the line divide? Where would the line divide? Do you do spiritual things on the weekend and then the rest of the week you secular lot, you abandon God and you live this lives without Him the rest of the week and then you get geared up again for Sunday? It's not how you were made. It's not how we function. It's not what you see in the Bible. You're a whole person. For believers, your whole life belongs to and is about God. doesn't matter what you do during the week. There's not an area of your life where God is not interested and involved. The Puritans had a wonderful saying called Coram Deo. Coram Deo. Coram Deo means this, before the face of God. Before the face of God. There's some churches that are even called Coram Deo. And the whole idea is that you live your life Coram Deo. 
you live your life before the face of God. There, there isn't an area of your life where you're like, you're busy with something and God's like, okay, cool, like accounting. Definitely not interested in that. You go do that. Come back to me when you, want, when you need some help for teaching kids church or leading a community group or sharing the gospel with your friend. Then God's back involved. Like, we don't have these distinctions. The sacred-secular divide for believers is not a thing. The sacred-secular divide is before you come to Christ and after you come to Christ. That's the division. When you see divisions in Scripture, it's like outside of Christ, in Christ. That's the division. Dead in your sins, alive to God in Christ. That's the division. So once you've become a believer, your whole life is wrapped up to live before the face of God. There's no distinction there. So when it comes to, when it comes to that saying that we said, uh, the being with God to sustain our doing for God, there's nothing that you do that isn't done for God. There's nothing that you do because there's no sacred. You don't kick into sacred mode and out of secular mode. Your whole life is sacred. If you're a believer in Jesus, your whole life is sacred. You need the Lord's help for every area of your life. Some of you are hearing this maybe for the first time. You're like, I never really thought about that before. I've never really thought that God would be interested in my work week and that God would be able to help me in my work week in the functions that you do. Why would he not be interested in that? Why would he only take interest in you and in your life on the weekend? When you come to church or when you get involved in Christian, he thinks there's, there's no separation. Most of you are not professional Christians. You spend most of your week doing things other than churchy work. I'm, you know, I'm one of the only professional Christians in the room. You know, I don't do non-churchy things. I do church things all the time. When I meet people, they're like, what else do you do? I'm like, have you ever been a pastor? Do you realize, like, uh, it does take up more than a Sunday. Um, you know, what else? But for most people, it's like, what the whole of your life, church and Christ, Christian, traditional Christian things take up such a small sliver of your time. Surely God's not only interested in that and disinterested in the majority of what you give your energy and your effort and your life to. Flip it upside down completely. He's maybe more interested in that because the majority of your time and energy and effort goes to that. He cares not just about how you do it, but what you're doing. It's not about just being a nice Christian at your workplace and doing a shoddy job. You're a, you're a whole person living your life before the face of God. We're going to talk more about later about how this practically plays itself out. That's the first distinction is this weird sacred secular divide that we need to dismantle so that we find ourselves saying, yeah, I need all of God for all of my life. The second distinction that we need to dismantle is the clergy laity divide. Now, some of you maybe not have been around church much. I think I'm speaking in Greek like you never even heard those words before. Clergy and laity basically uh, is, clergy are like professional Christians like me, pastors, bishops, you know, apostles, whatever else, church people. And the laity are like the, the garden variety Christians, the congregation, like everybody else who's not, you know, <laughs> did I say something wrong? I don't know what I said. I don't know why you're laughing at me, but like the regular Christians, um, that we, we do important stuff and everybody helps the clergy, you know. Some of you have come from churches like that where 
they're like, listen, John, you're not handing out the communion. You're not baptizing anyone. Don't get excited. Don't, there's like a, a rail. Have any of you grown up in a church like that where the main people are this side of the rail and they let you know that you stay that side of the rail? Don't come this side until you are qualified and approved and then we'll get you a dress and all that kind of stuff. I'm teasing. I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop. Stay t- stick with the notes here. And they enforce that distinction between there are special clergy and then there's laity. And they do special things and the rest of you watch them do the special stuff, the really important heavy lifting. And if you jump through enough hoops, maybe you can jump over the rail and you can join that side of the, and that team. Uh, but most of the main action happens with a few people and everybody else basically assists those guys to get everything done. That is an unbiblical and I'm going to make no friends this morning. That's an unbiblical distinction. It's an unbiblical distinction. There is no clergy laity distinction. There is in the scriptures a distinction between different offices and gifts and functions and privileges and talents and everything else in the church. God does call some people in his church to lead with different office and different authority in the church for the health of the church, but they lead as servants in the church. They don't have any special access. They don't have any special privileges, as it were. They lead God's people by serving them, just like Jesus served the church. Ephesians 4 talks about how God has given um, a five-fold ministry uh, of, I don't need to go into all of it, but there's, there's five different offices almost that God has called people to, to. And the purpose of that is that God has given some people in the church particular giftings to equip the rest of the church for works of service. So God has works of service that he wants the rest of the church, the whole church doing, and he, he uniquely equips some people to um, help the rest of the church do the majority of the action and the activity, the kingdom work of the church. Um, you see in 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about the image of the church as a body, that there's eyes and hands and feet and whatever else, and everyone has different gifts, and as you play according to your gift, as you serve according to your gift, the whole body is built up and strengthened, um, and, and we serve one another, and the whole, the whole body gets healthier and better, because every part is doing its unique function, and it's no point the eye longing to be an ear, the foot longing to be a hand, it's like, no, you're a foot, just be a good foot, like, don't, don't want to be a hand, you're not a hand, just realize you're a foot, and I do foot things, and go for it, like, once you realize I'm a foot, not a hand, life is much easier, um, and that, that's the journey with some Christians. It's like they long to be a hand. God's made them a foot. Like, anyway, um, the image of the body. Uh, in, in, in Peter, First Peter chapter 2, uh, Peter talks about uh, the, the fact that we are a holy priesthood. We are all priests. That's why we don't have priests. That's why I don't wear a collar. Thank you, Lord. Um, and that's why you don't come and confess your sins to me. And you don't pray through me. We don't, believe in, we don't believe in that. We believe that we are a holy priesthood. We are all priests. We now, because a temple curtain was torn in two, we all have access to God ourselves. You don't have to go through somebody to hear God or to hear from God. I'm not an oracle who dispenses the word of the Lord to you, and you can't hear from him yourself. You can't study the Bible yourself. Priests served as a representation a go-between between the people and God. And now, Peter says, we are a holy priesthood. We're all, if you're a believer in Jesus, we're all priests together. We all get to serve God.
God's purposes. There is no distinction. This clergy laity thing. I, I don't know. I, I, I thought of different ways to put it more strongly. And I shied away from them, thankfully. But I want to really impress upon you that distinction of secular and sacred is really unhelpful. This distinction is equally unhelpful. That you feel like you go to church to watch me or hear me, the clergy, do all this main stuff. And then sometimes you volunteer. That's why we're on a crusade to get rid of the word volunteer in church. There's no volunteers in church. There's no, there's servants, there's serving teams. You, you choose a place where you serve the greater purposes together as a body. There's no volunteers. A volunteer is like, um, I'm going to give you a bit of my time. I'm going to volunteer a bit of my time. Look at me. The Bible says you don't belong to yourself. It says you belong to God and you belong to the body. We belong to one another. It doesn't, it doesn't entertain the volunteer imagery or language that I'm going to sign up and give a bit of my time to this thing. It's like I'm in this together. I'm connected to these people. This is a family. You don't volunteer to go to family lunch. Do you? No, you just go because it's the family are getting together and you go. And you all pitch in and you do your stuff. You're not like I'm volunteering to host the family. It's like, no, you host your family, you have them over. But it, like, the volunteer language is weird. You can volunteer charities, but churches don't have volunteers. They have servants as we serve Jesus and serve one another. There's no distinction between this clergy and laity. So if we've seen that there's no breakdown between sacred and secular in that sense, and there's no distinction between professional Christians and Christians, then when it comes to the statement that we need to be with God to sustain our doing for God, we all need to be with God to sustain the doing for God, which is our whole life. You need God to strengthen and help and equip you in every area of your life. Whether you're a professional Christian or not, whether you see your job as a sacred calling or not. The truth of it is that it is. And your experience needs to catch up with the reality. Back to Jesus, his example for us is not just an example. It is an example, but it's not just, if it was necessary for the Son of God, if it was necessary for the Son of God when he was in the world to get alone in the power of the Spirit, to lean on the Word for his joy and for his ministry, how much more is it for us? How much more do we need to be with God to sustain our doing for God than Jesus did? And, and, and I want to say this, I want to say it a few times, that our being with God doesn't earn salvation. Being with God is a way of enjoying your salvation, not earning it. Okay? Being with God is a way of um, enjoying, not earning. Those are very important words. Enjoying, not earning. It's not like, hey, God, look at me. Here I am again. Fifth day in a row. Look at me. I know I'm your favorite. Those other clowns, they don't even know where their Bibles are. It's not, you're not earning anything. It's all been earned. We've just come out of Easter. That's it. It is finished. It's all done. All the earning's been done, and it wasn't by you. It was all by him. We get to receive that. Our being with God is not earning us anything. It's a means of us enjoying the salvation that has been won for us on the cross. How much do you enjoy your relationship with God that Jesus has secured for you? 
Because it's, let me just say it like this. The world needs more Christians who enjoy Jesus. Who just enjoy the presence of God and go out into the world full of the joy of God. Not just ready to rain on everybody else, miserable, duty-bound, crushed by our weight of all the things they should do and shouldn't do. There are things that you should do and there are things you shouldn't do. But if you front-load your relationship with God like that, you've missed the purpose of the cross that took care of the fact that you should and shouldn't. Jesus did. He lived the perfect life for you and he died because you did a whole bunch of stuff and you do a whole bunch of stuff you shouldn't do. He's dealt with all that stuff. The purpose of the implications of the cross is that you get to enjoy a salvation that has been won for you and work it out in your life. So as we close, what are four action steps that you can take? I know this is a bit more practical. This is a slightly different sermon to what we normally do. But we'll get back into the books again next week. Four things that you can do. The first thing I think you need to do if you're a note taker is take radical action. Take radical action. If you have never read the book, The The Ruthless Elimination of Harry by John Mark Comer, you should read it. If you're sitting here this morning, you're feeling weary, strung out, feeling like this is all a bit much. I'd, I'd love to make some changes, but whatever. You need to read that book. It's a word of, from the Lord for you for the time that you find yourself in. You need to take radical action and resign, submit your resignation to a culture of busyness and running around like a headless chicken. Say, I'm tapping out. I'm tapping out of the culture around me that wants to, me to subscribe to running around like a lifeless, headless chicken, strung out, wrung out, joyless, feeling constantly overwhelmed and exhausted. You need to, as um, as Dallas Willard told John Mark Homer in that book, you need to ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. You need to ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Not activity, not doing things. It's not like you go and you know move to Nasna and go and live on a farm and smoke weed and just like I did. I did what Doug said. I just ruthlessly eliminated all activity from my life. You know, ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Hurry. Hurry is a state of soul. It's where you just feel like there's a hamster wheel on the, on the inside. You can never slow down. There's always something more to do. You can never just be. All of your worth is connected to what you produce, how much value you add. Take radical action to resign from the culture of relentless busyness. The second thing is one thing that we've emphasized throughout this, uh, this series, that you allow yourself to feel. You allow yourself to feel your emotions and you take note of them. That requires a slowing down. It requires a slowing down. It requires reflection. It requires naming. This is how I'm feeling. Why am I feeling like it? Let me reflect. Lord, show me why. Why am I feeling like this after this day? Why did I have that reaction to this experience? What's going on in me? What are you trying to teach me? What are you trying to show me? How are you trying to change me? If you run a mile a minute through life, and you never pause, you miss the benefit of paying any attention to your emotional world, and life happens to you instead of, you know, you being able to embrace all of it and learn and experience Jesus in all of it. So allowing yourself to feel and take notice of those things. The third thing is to integrate silence, to integrate silence into your life. 
silence is a marker of maturity in a relationship. Say that again. Silence is a marker of maturity in a relationship. If you've been around a young couple who are trying to get to know each other, they don't have to be young. They can just be a new couple trying to get to know each other. Yeah, talking, always talking, nervous, giggling. They can't have silence because what are you going to do with the silence? You've got to fill it with a question or a comment or a giggle or something else or people watching. That's why people go on dates in public places. If you've got nothing to say to each other, you can at least point out all the weird people who are around you and like have a collective laugh at them. That's a dating tip if you're dating. Try that. Um, in, in, In immature relationships, there's lots of noise and conversation. In mature relationships, you become more comfortable with silence, because you can just be. When Claire and I, we've been married for uh, 20 something years, you, we, can, we can be together and not talk. We can just be quiet. These guys have been married for ages. These guys have been married for ages. These guys are going for a good while. I'm trying to find some of all the old, old toppies around here. You see, we don't have enough here. Looking at the back there. Huh? Who? No, I pointed at you already. You need to clean those glasses. That's how old you are. You can't even see that I'm talking about you. <laughs> you know, you hang out with these guys. They don't, they don't talk all the time. There is conversation. There is conversation. You go to some restaurants, you see couples together, and like it's normally the 30s, 40s, year old. Like that's an unhealthy relationship. They're either both on their phones. There's an awkward silence you can get where there's, and there's a comfortable silence. What we're going for is comfortable silence because it's a mark of maturity we've learned to be quiet with our God. Sounds easier. Just try it. Just try and be quiet in the presence of God. And you'll realize how noisy your own head is, how noisy your heart is, how difficult it is to slow down and to be quiet in the presence of God. What you will do as you learn this skill is you'll realize you just want to start talking. Lord, I need this, I need this, I need this. You realize that we, God is utilitarian to us. We use God more than we enjoy God. Most of our prayer life is, God, I need you to do this, I need you to do this, I need you to do this. Ah, okay, wait, let me do that for that person and that person. Not just all about me, Lord, do things for other people. But you're still talking all the time. You're still talking. You're still running the show. Progress in prayer and Christian maturity is that you learn to shut up. Sorry, you learn to be quiet. You learn to be quiet and allow him to speak, and you do more listening than speaking. People say, I never hear God speak. It's like, because you're talking all the time. He speaks through his word. Read his word. It hits you with different force at different times. So, Lord, I feel like you're speaking to me. I'm reading the Old Testament, but it's jumping out at me. This, you are speaking into my situation. God speaks like that. But if you're talking all the time, you can't hear him. If you're never sitting down to be quiet, You can believe that God is busy with other parts of the world and is not interested in your life, but you've never actually given it a good go to to have an extended period of time sitting with God. I want to I want to remind you of this. This this is the hardest thing. This is why Christians don't do it. If it was easy, everyone would do it. This is one of the hardest things: is to learn to sit silently with God and listen to Him, because it requires a laying down of your own will so that you can embrace His will. When you're talking all the time, when you're bossing him around with your prayer requests, you're in charge. You're calling the shots. When you learn to be quiet, now he's calling the shots. You're not trying to change him. He's changing you. That's where you start to make massive progress. 
The people I know who are the godliest, holiest, most mature people have learned the secret of sitting alone with God in silence. To enjoy Him. Not just to get Him to do what you need done. But just enjoy Him for who He is. Because what if He doesn't do what you want Him to do? Will you still love Him? Unless you learn to love Him for who He is, not what He can do for you. What does Tim Keller say? Um, some people find God useful. Believers find God beautiful. God is not useful to us. God is beautiful to us. There is a distinction there. And we need to learn that, and we learn that in silence. Here's the fourth thing, and it comes in the form of a challenge to embrace your inner monk. Um, you see in Daniel, when a decree is given um, to worship the, the king, Daniel prays three times a day. You can go and read it in Daniel 6. Daniel prays three times a day. He gets busted for that. He gets into trouble for praying three times a day. I'm not making this a prescriptive thing that you have to pray three times a day. I do think, though, that if you want to thrive as a Christian, we need multiple check-ins with God in the day. I don't see Claire in the morning and be like, fist bump, big hug, hey, how's it going? Like a great, see you tomorrow morning. You know? We, we're in contact throughout the day. And that keeps our relationship healthy and strong and, and vibrant. And we get to enjoy each other by having multiple contact points throughout the day. You know, we understand this in a human relationship level. And we, we lose it in our relationship with God. Here's a challenge as we close. This is not a legalistic thing. If you don't want to do this, it's okay. God still loves you. It's fine. You're not earning anything, remember. I want to encourage you to do this. To find one or a few people. So it's only a few people. Okay, and not the whole crowd, because it doesn't work if you do it like that. Either one person or a couple of people, form a WhatsApp group, do whatever you need to, and take up a 21-day challenge to, to, to check in with God three times a day. Okay, so it works like this, that you hold each other accountable in a positive way, not in a legalistic kind of a way, where it's like if you don't do it, you're out of the group. Uh, you know, <laughs> whatever has left the group <laughs> has been removed, you know. Can you remove people from groups? WhatsApp has made life so confusing with this group stuff. Anyway, uh, that you don't kick the person out of the group if they miss one, but you hold each other accountable in a positive way to say, hey, have you checked in with the Lord in the morning, around lunchtime, and in the afternoon or the evening? And sometimes it could just be a couple of minutes. I've, I've been doing this for a while. Sometimes when I check in with God, it's just like a couple of minutes. It's like in between meetings, it's like, okay, hey, God, I need your help. That didn't go very well. Or like I'm pretty anxious about this one. I'm feeling strung out. I just had an interaction with one of my kids, and I'm ready to sell them into slavery. Lord, I need, that's kind of a daily prayer. Uh, like I need your help, Lord. Like, you know, I'm going to wait into this again later. And I'm mindful. It's helped me be more mindful of God throughout the day. Not rely on like a check-in in the morning and just like, you know, let's see you again tomorrow morning, God, or see you in a couple of days. And then we wonder why we're so weary and powerless and lifeless and lacking in joy. I want to encourage you to try that challenge. Find some people who would give you positive, helpful accountability and sign up for a 21-day challenge with them where you commit to encourage each other to check in with God three times a day and see what God does in your life. See what God does in your awareness of Him. As you are mindful, say, hey, Lord, speak to me. Move. I'm going into this meeting. 
I've messed this thing up. I'm going into a performance review with my boss. I'm going to get my butt kicked. I need your grace. You need two minutes before you go into something like that. Do you think the Lord is looking away as they come back to me after that meeting? After that meeting, I'm not really interested in that stuff. No, he's there with you in the midst of that. He's in everything. There is no sacred secular divide. There is no clergy laity divide. You need to be with God to sustain all of your doing for God. We get to do all of this because there is one who's done it all for us. And we, get, we, we purposefully put communion at the end of this message because I don't want you to leave here thinking, I've got a list of things I need to do. Yeah, Some of you love lists. Some of you love challenges. Some of you love doing. Amen. But we only ever do in response to what has been done for us. We are responders to revelation. We are worshipers because we were loved first. And we're going to end this morning with communion as we come again to sit initially in silence, initially in silence, and then we're going to worship. As we come and sit and reflect on Jesus and thank him, there's a body that was given for us, there was blood that was shed for us, so that we can enjoy a salvation and we don't have to earn it. Everything I've been speaking about this morning is that you get to enjoy all the earnings being done. And so we celebrate the one who earned it for us. And we ask him this morning, would you help us to enjoy? We want to live lives of joy. Would you help us, Lord? Let's pray together. Father, you have accomplished for us through, through the death and resurrection of Jesus more than we could ever possibly imagine. And as we pause now and as we ready our hearts um, to come to celebrate communion together um, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we pray, <coughs> we pray for the presence of of the Holy Spirit amongst us. We, we, we sense that you, we know that you are here amongst us. The promise of your word assures us of that. As we quieten down and as we slow down, we pray for this glorious, miraculous work of the Holy Spirit revealing, revealing to us, speaking to us, assuring us that we belong to you, that we are forgiven that our sins have been cleansed, that we are secure in you, that all of our lives are seen by you. Help us, Father, to be a people who enjoy you, that I just find you useful. Jesus, you have the name that is above every name. One day every knee will bow, and one day every tongue will confess that you are Lord the glory of your Father. And we do that joyfully this morning. We bow our knees as we bow our hearts, our lives before you and declare that you are Lord. There's no one as beautiful as you. There's no one as worthy as you. There's no one who's done what you have done. There's no one who even this morning, right now, loves us like you do. There's no human being who loves us like you. Human love pales in comparison to the love that you have for us. And I pray that you would help us to enjoy that afresh this morning. Thank you that we don't have to earn. It's all been earned for us. We just get to enjoy. 
And as we come to quiet our hearts now in your presence, we pray you would speak. You would encourage us. You would love us. Your grace would wash over our lives again this morning. We want to be a joy-filled people who you send out of this place to live for you this week and whatever it is you, you've called us and you give us to do. And we so desperately need to be refreshed by you for those purposes. So would you come and refresh us now in your presence for our good and for your glory we ask it.